Welcome to Real Nerds Podcast, unofficially the official podcast at Denver Comic Con 2014 and beyond. You know it's a great town? Telluride. And in October, in Telluride, they have their horror show where you can see some great movies and talk to some great filmmakers like we did. So here's an exclusive interview with said filmmaker. Welcome to Real Nerds Podcast at Telluride Horror 2013. I am Ryan, James, and Brad, and we have the honor with sitting with visual effects awesome dude phil tippett thanks for coming on our show sir my pleasure uh so you're at telluride this year kind of have a passion project here this uh, it's called mad god that i just got out of and it's amazing uh yeah. do you mind telling everybody what mad god is about and how it came around well mad god kind of dis- defies description and and i'm not you know um I look at it a little bit more like uh, instead of you know uh, explanatory filmmaking that that makes sense of itself and creating a narrative that's maybe a little bit more like certain forms of writing where the the audience members themselves you know, complete the thing you know the, the a lot of the ideas in it are kind of stolen from dreams and the imagery is. Uh, you know, it's not futuristic. It's very iconic. All all of the you know, objects and things are like very understandable in terms of our everyday experience, but they're put together in a way that is kind of broken and reconfigured. Um, a little bit like surrealistic. I wouldn't call it surrealistic, but it's using more of like a an unconscious frame of reference to build things with. It comes across a lot like uh, like storytelling through world building, um, which I think is what is so engrossing about it is that it drops you into this place, and because there's you know they there's, they don't tell you anything or you don't tell us anything, I should say, um, that you just you're you're soaking in everything as much as you can because you're trying to figure out exactly what you know, and then like you said in your Q and A afterwards, then you move on so quickly that um, it just keeps us you know running to keep up. Uh, it's fascinating. It's, it's just absolutely yeah. Gorgeous. I was kind of thinking, you know, that that the final form of the thing is is the memory of it after you watch it. You know yeah. how, how that, that that's what the the experience really is. It's not not the film. The film is just the way to get there. And is that because you got the idea from a dream? Because you said that as well. So when you dream, you think about your dream prior, and then it's an interpretation of what you previously thought you were dreaming of? Yeah, I mean, none of, none of the Mad God imagery has come from a dream. It's, it's just influenced by that kind of experience. You know, I was just looking for another way of um, developing a narrative. In a lot of ways, like breaking a lot of the rules in that, that I have in my day job, where in theatrical, conventional theatrical cinema, there are like so many rules about continuity and editing and how long you can let something play. And they're arbitrary rules. They're just a convention that uh, that's part of the nomenclature of the film language of the day. And there's a lot of other stuff that you can do with it. And so I, I chose a path that I just hadn't seen anybody else on because I was kind of curious about it. And you said that you were archiving the footage and that uh, you're fellow employees kind of egged you on to do it. Did you uh, lose all interest of it originally and they're the ones who pushed you? Or did you always have it in your back burner that you were going to do it? No, I totally thought it was dead. You know, I thought <laughs> that after I had initially shot 
you know, maybe five or six minutes, you know, 20 years ago on 35 millimeter film, uh, a number of contingent events, you know, entered into my life that, that took all my effort. You know, like I was saying, like raising kids and, and making the transition from photographic to digital imagery, you know, it took a, a tremendous amount of effort. And it just so happened that I was archiving the material, and these guys stepped in and said, hey, we'll donate our time and, and help help if you want to. I mean, their interest was more um, in in a project that was about making things, you know, and, and using saws and hammers and glue and stuff like that to, you know, build pictures with. So you had to learn digital, correct? Or did you already have an kind of know how to do it from your years as a special effects artist? Yeah, yeah I, I, I am probably the stupidest person in my studio <laughs> in regard to, to digital technology. I mean, I have no interest in it, you know. Um, I, I, it's too complicated, mm-hmm. and there are too many things. And I don't personally like the way it looks, um, but there are a lot better people than me that do that stuff and, and can make stuff look better. And... Uh, so, I mean, just the, the, in the genesis of my career at a certain point, it just was happening about the time the digital took over, i kind of been kicked upstairs. So I, I didn't do any hands-on work anyway. It was more, you know, working with production teams, getting productions in place, going out and shooting, making sure all the material was shot right, and then, and then coming back and, and putting things in place for the crews to put it together. So how was the learning crew then for the guys who didn't know how to do the physical things on with saws and hammers and stop motion. Did they get it really fast, or was it a, a long process where you became a teacher? Well, for most of the people that I took, I made, I made a few mistakes early on because I would I would go give talks and people would uh, want to volunteer, and so initially I, I was pretty uh, open about who could come and do things. The thing is, you have to find people that are already at a certain skill level. Otherwise, it's just, I, mean, I have a lot of heavy lifting work that I need. I need, a, like, a lot of the same thing built. But you've got to be really careful doing that, you know, bringing people that don't, you know. At a certain point, I had to, like, back off from keeping the invitation open to people that had never worked with tools before because it was like giving razor blades to four-year-olds. <laughs> and, and, and I thought better of it. So everybody that, that's, that's come on has a, a certain skill set and, and ability. You know that I, I'm pretty aware of before they, they engage. One of the things I was really fascinated by in your presentation was you, you sort of you said that when when the guys in your team saw what you'd done, they were really excited about, like you just said, getting to work on that stuff. What do you think it is about um, models and all that sort of you know practical effects that? tend to be like a passion project for people and I think it's true even on the audience's side where like a couple of years ago uh, Duncan Jones's moon got a lot of praise because all the shots on the moon were all practical model effects um, is there something about uh, those visual effects being tactile that people just feel like they can they understand what a labor of love it is more than they do you know CG animators are, are passionate and really talented too but is there something where we can connect with it easier well you know um I think there's a couple of things. I mean, one, you get for free. When you shoot an object, you're photographically documenting it as opposed to artificially reconstructing it. So there is, even though it's going through another medium, it's a representation of a real thing, not a a virtual thing. And by 
virtue of that fact, you know, depending upon how you build your thing, uh, let me back up. When you approach building things digitally, you have to work from a from a position of intention. And usually there's a lot of stuff, at least for theatrical films, you know, a, a big pre-design thing where you get like a whole lot of input and then uh, some very specific moves to make the stuff quote-unquote look real. But if you work with objects, you're they're already real. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it, it's just a matter of skill and finish uh, that, that you actually put on on the models to, to, to do things. And, and another aspect of working with things is that uh, as opposed to working, you know, from an intention towards an objective, uh, objects tell you a lot about what they want to be. So there's a different kind of a dialogue in, in terms of, of making things, you know, that's, that literally is a dialogue between the thing that you're making and, and the process that, that you're using. And a lot of things can change. I mean, most of the, you know, great ideas you get that come from accidents. And accidents you kind of have to blunder into, you know. And it's hard to, it's hard to fail into an accident when you're, when you're doing CG. Digitally, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, in your in your film Mad God, I mean, it's it's really it is feels like you can touch it, and it's so open for interpretation. I kept on uh, trying to put together what the Mad God meant, and when he was descending into uh, the pit or whatever it was, I saw that huge like statue. I kept on waiting for it to come out and get him, and then it's just building and building to uh, something else. And you said in your presentation you want people to think back to what they had and. You mentioned the character's name was the assassin, but it looked like he was rescuing the the monster in the when he opened the door and it looked at him. Is it all open for interpretation, or is there a, an yeah. ending in sight? Or how? No, it, 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 it was constructed to work, you know, more like dreams work and keep it keep it very open to interpretation. You know, uh, I had a I gave a, a talk to some film students up in Boulder earlier in the year, and we did a screening and had a pretty big audience and some of the people in the audience actually got irate that they asked me what it meant and I <laughs> turned it around and said what does it mean to you and they thought I was messing with them and it, yeah, they had like some specific ideas and the, the way I, I tried to explain it was that um, I kind of look I have like a 3D or a sculptural mind and I, I, th I think in, in 3D in terms of things but then I, I also think on a conceptual level mentally which are two totally different animals and I, I looked at the object of, of Mad God as kind of like being a uh, receptacle or a vase or something like that that people could put interpretations into and come out of it a lot you know writers do it all the time i mean the 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 person that writes the book is the reader you know yeah. Yeah. And, and puts it together so it's like more using those kind of ideas or conventions sorry i didn't know <laughs> i was waiting for me he's like <gasps> i thought he's gonna ask something really profound but then nothing came out <laughs> Um, so, uh, do you mind if we go back and talk about how you got into film and uh, what piqued your interest originally in film? I was just a kid that liked, you know, movies, you know, in the 50s and 60s and 
seventies and eighties. And you know, was a big fan of you know Ray Harryhausen's movies and all that stuff, and just kind of did it and got to a certain level of, of proficiency and was able to meet uh, a, a number of you know people that mentored me that you know helped me you know on my way and it just one thing led to the next. The other thing was nobody was doing this kind of stuff, so if if you had a, a certain level of proficiency and and people wanted you know a robot or a dinosaur or, or whatnot there weren't that many places to go to so it was easy to get hired <laughs> yeah it's fascinating you know it's one of the stories you hear uh, a lot about star wars is that you know when all those there was so much weight left on the effect shots and and at the time it seems like nobody really knew um what that was going to look like or how it was going to work or how to do it um and yet you guys ended up like coming out with some of the most amazing stuff, you know, stuff that was inspiring to generations of kids. Well, the funny thing about that is, uh, you know, all of that stuff was based on on approaches that had been, you know, figured out in the 20s and 30s, right. you know, pretty much. And we were all like students of that kind of work. And the studios had forgotten about it. They had disbanded all their visual effects um, uh, departments and and slowly over the years, as you know, the studios have gone from these places that that were owned by the Jack Warners or the Mayors or you know, uh, and have become more corporatized. You know, the studios have have forgotten how to make movies. You know, the, there's a changeover in the on the business side, and history is forgotten. So when a Lucas and a Spielberg come back and go like. Hey, you know, there was a component of all these things that were really successful that we can come back and put a new coat of paint on. I mean, there were certain tech, technological developments. I mean, I think that's a way to look at it, that nothing pretty much anywhere, and certainly in cinema, changes really until the technology changes. And then people, you know, put sound in their movies and color on their movies and, you know, 3D on their movies and... and uh, and on, on the Star Wars movies, the, the uh, motion control technology was the single most, you know, important kind of a thing to start to get what was previously kind of chattery, jittery looking, looking stuff for B-movies uh, to integrate more into live action for the, what were now becoming the A-movies, movies that had like, you know, 10 and $20 million budgets as opposed to the 2 or $3 million budgets the low, low, lower budget Ray Harryhausen movies had. Do you did you know at the time when you were working on Star Wars that it would be the phenomenon it became? Did you did you feel a special thing? No, the way that we looked at it when we got hired onto it, we got hired uh, to do um, a number of inserts to replace material that was shot in England for the Cantina, and that's where George realized that that you know we were doing stop motion as well. Um, it all kind of just flowed together magically, you know, somehow, you know, we just didn't, um, it was, it was, um, as though no one had to try <laughs> to do anything, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, and, and George screened Star Wars for us, uh, you know, before we started working on these things, and we were a bit big fans of TH, you know, X, and, you know, George was a really 
terrific director. And so we would screen the cantina scene or the chess scene, and we'd go like, wow, hey, that's exactly the kind of movie we always wanted to work on. And I really had fun doing all that stuff. And then we went to the cast and crew screening of it, and we were as bowled over as anybody else when it was all together. Hmm. Really cool. And then you also won an Academy Award shortly after that for another Star Wars, correct? For the for Jedi, yeah. For Jedi, yeah. And it, it, to me, that's so cool because I'm sitting with an Oscar winner, one. And two, <laughs> um, what do you think... Was that an a Oscar for just Jedi, or do you think it was kind of like they gave it to you because how great of a job you guys did throughout the whole trilogy and... Um, well, there are rules at the Academy about oh, cool. that <laughs> stuff, you know. But the how I got that was, was yeah, you're kind of on the right track. I mean, it was actually George um, worked with the Academy to get one more guy on the, you know. I did a lot of work for him. And so he said, you know, Phil should get an Oscar. Hmm. Well, he, only three people can get it. Well, what if four people can get it? <laughs> <laughs> and now eight people can get it. Yeah. So. yeah, yeah. Well, the teams are you know a whole lot more than twice as big as they were then. Um, so that's funny. You you also worked on uh, the Temple of Doom, which is kind of the darker Indiana Jones, but it's actually uh, my favorite Indiana Jones movie. Um, and uh, what scenes did you work on there? And what were the challenges of working with Indiana? I, I just kind of came in as a, you know, to help Dennis Mirren out, who was supervising the show. So I, I helped him get the stuff together for the mine car chase and mm-hmm. helped him uh, bring and, and shoot the thing where the guy's being lowered into the lava. Oh, sweet. That, that's the only <laughs> stuff I've worked on. Um, what, uh, what is your most... Um, what, what are you most proud of in your career when you look back, or is it always something new that you're constantly working on? No, it's, you know, I, I think, you know, over, like, a career that, like, spans, like, 30 years, you just you look back on the, the you know, teams of people that you've worked with. Mm. That's the most resonant, you know, of, you know, you had a great time making this thing, and it turned out not to be a piece of crap <laughs> and when, when we went uh kathy kennedy invented, invited dennis knight down once the first answer print was struck down to amblin and she screened jurassic park it was just like the four of us and when it was over she goes like what did you think and went like it's not terrible and she went like that's exactly what i thought i mean because you're working with so many disparate parts you know that until like you know you get it to a certain point in editorially, you just keep your fingers crossed. And there's so many things that I've worked on that you think are, are, is going to have potential and just, like, dies a terrible death. So also, because you work with so many things and you do just the visual effects, you have to rely, I guess, a lot on the editor and the director to bring it all together, or does your effects won't work correctly? Well, in, in, in the context that works, it's... Um, it's a um, partnership, you know. Everybody has their job, and everybody, the the best directors are the most inclusive ones, mm-hmm. and editors. I mean, everything. All costumers, you know. If everybody, you know, you, sometimes you get on bad crews where everybody's like territorial and wants to try and you know be in charge and have control issues. But generally, if you have like a a, a strong director that's very inclusive, you know, you're invited in to 
to play. You know, what would we, what would be good? What would be fun? Hey, what if we did this? Oh, that's a good idea. We should do that. Does that make working on something like Mad God feel daunting, or does it make it feel freeing that Mad you never? Mad God's have? a totally different animal. You yeah. know, because it's not it's not uh, driven by a schedule or a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> so that it kind of it takes it out of that sphere. I mean, it it, it, can, it gets very stressful working on some of the other things because there's always a release date and a finite mm-hmm. amount of money, and there's always always never enough money. Does it does it ever have? Do you ever have to compromise a vision because of a release date then on something they want to do? Or are you able to get what you want out of it? Yeah. Well, um, usually by that point, for me, it's like the 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 film has gone south by you know for reasons that are you know beyond <laughs> your control. Uh, it's not so much of a of a. Uh, personal vision you know it's more of an architectonic process of like you do this 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 you you build everything up and you you do it with a plan um and uh sometimes that that plan blows up and then you have to like recalculate and figure out a different you know way of going about doing it do you have a favorite kind of movie you like to work on because you've done so many different ones from robocop to Indiana Jones, to Star Wars, to Mad God. Um, do you have a certain vision you like to have? you like them darker? Do you like them to be a little more light? Uh, or is it just whatever is... I'm, I'm pretty omnivorous. You know, I'm, I'm kind of done, you know, with it. I don't, I don't like working on movies anymore that much. Boring. Really? So well, they've, you know, in, in the olden days when I worked with this guy, <laughs> you know, it was... Um, it, you know, the way I look at it is, you know, or look back at it is, you know, there was all that stuff that led up to um, Jurassic Park and Starship Troopers. Mm. And then there's like this <clears throat> precipitous fall off where things just start started looking like crap. Yeah. And they still do. You know, I went to see, um, I went to see Gravity last week, which was phenomenal. Uh, and all of the trailers that they ran for it with uh, The Hobbit and Thor. I mean, it just, all the visual effects stuff just looks like it was just like the same giant cauldron of oatmeal that had been mixed <laughs> together over and over and over. It's yeah. just, it just, it's a uh, corporatized process, you know, homogenized, you know, franchise bullshit for the masses. And it's, it's tedious. Well, I think it feels like, I mean, as an, as an audience member, it feels like people have sort of forgotten that, you know, they think that CG can just do everything. And what, what we end up getting the, uh, the sense of is that, like, when everything is CG, we know none of it is real. And what's really great about your Starship Troopers and your, your, uh, your uh, Dragon Hearts and things like that is that even when they started introducing CG, and, and Jurassic Park is this way too, the close-ups, the... Um, the places where we really needed detail, where we really needed things to be tactile, were all still practical. Um, Jurassic Park doesn't work because the CG is like, oh man, it was so impressive. It works because Steven Spielberg knew, like, okay, when when the T Rex gets close, I want it to have that that eyeball that moves the way that uh, ET's eye moves. Well, and and, and Steven was a, a a child that grew up loving that stuff, yeah. And so he knew the same thing with Paul. He they were students of film, mm-hmm. and they they genuinely loved all of that stuff and the fish stinks from the head on down as they say you mm-hmm. know and, and that makes 
you know everybody else's work you know up to a certain level but when you know these days the studio arbitrarily hires the 24 year old Argentinian video you know guy you know so they can beat him up it's just that's a fucked up process hmm. yeah. yeah I mean I, I agree too because uh, something like World War Z where they have CGI zombies running around I think it's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen where something like Mad God where I can when I see him descending and those walls I feel like I can touch him I think is a more has a more profound effect on me than uh, CGI like puppets flying around the screen I, you know I've, I've I didn't hate World War Z. Oh, I didn't. <laughs> no, I didn't either. I don't think the movie's bad. I just think that those parts make it bad. Yeah. Like, they just, they're unnecessary. Well, who is it? It was Siskel or Ebert said something like it at some point in time. Like, stop motion, uh, computer graphics uh, looks real but feels fake, and stop motion mm-hmm. miniature looks fake but feels real. Yeah. That kind of... I was just going to say, because, like... All that, all that stuff in like in World War Z is really impressive, and you look at it and you go, oh yeah, yeah. As much as it may look real um, visually, I, I don't take anything home with me, you know. Whereas when something is, you know, like something like Mad God, where I kind of want to just go back and pause it every now and then, just stare at the at the corners of the screen and see what I'm missing. Like that's the stuff that you carry. Well, with you. We, we, the the times were different, so the the teams that you worked with were were much smaller. Hmm. So if we were reviewing shots, it would be. Like, you know, like on Troopers, it would be John and Mark Goldblatt and the ed- the editor and Paul and me. It would be like four guys in a room going like, here's what we should do. And now it's not like that. It gets like run up the food chain. There's so many people that help you make your movie. And, and generally the first thing that they say is uh, we want it to be real which is my indication of, you know, meeting with somebody that doesn't have an education <laughs> at all. Because I don't know if anybody bothered telling anybody before, but movies are pretend. <laughs> and it's, it's not about making things look real. It's making things look, you know, viscerally dynamic and really making them look good. And, you know, so I mean, that's always... And then, then the studios got into this thing, you know, where... Um, in the olden days, producers knew what visual effects were, but subsequently uh, they lost that skill and they would hire middle managers called visual effects supervisors mm. that work for the studios. And generally these people are, are middle managers. And there's a, this competition that it's got engendered over the last like you know 15 or 20 years where when you go into a review, what the review is about is find what's wrong with the shot and it becomes a game. Mm-hmm. And so there's always something wrong with the shot because everything's subjective. And you can, you can look, micromanage it down to a pixel and that's, that's what can be wrong with the shot. And, you know, uh, we can do like 500 takes, you know, digitally now because we're redoing it. And it gets to a point where, you know, these guys don't know how to manage people. If you manage artists, what you do is you encourage them. Mm-hmm. But if you are looking for what's wrong with what they do, what you get is like, okay, lady, where do you want your sofa? You want it over there? Or you want it over there? I don't give a fuck. You know, I'll put it wherever you want it. But it, it's uh, creative mismanagement. And that, that's part of the whole corporate modality. And, it, you know, the fish stinks from the head on down and it messed it up. But in the, in, in the day, I was just talking to Dennis about it 
this this particular problem was um, we never thought about what was wrong with the shots. We we only thought about hey, what will make it better. Hmm. And you you also mentioned that in your presentation too that as you as a director for an artist you tell them okay they start here they jump a fence and then they land and um, and you can tell in Mad God it's just so cool it's just so much to absorb because you're not giving them you're not hampering them down well and part of it is is your your own mental preservation you know you're an idiot if you have control issues and you have to micromanage everything you know it's just you know that just means you're psychotic on a certain level you know but if if you can still embrace that childlike thing you know what you're looking for you're just looking to be amazed Hmm. you know and you know the 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 job of, of directing a lot of time is just you know, giving people guidelines and then wanting to be amazed by what they do and like just see it and go like that is really cool. I would have never thought to do that in a million years. How'd you like uh, working with Paul Verhoeven? I really liked it a lot. No, cool. we got along really well. No, very cool. We, we had we had the Vulcan mind meld thing going, and uh, and and we'd be working on something and we would like be drawing. Yeah. Okay. Well, the camera's over here, and the thing's over here, and this is over here, and this. Like, and then, okay, fine. We know what we're doing. Yeah. We throw like the page down, and like the first AD would come up and go like, "You guys are fucking with us, right? <laughs> it's just like a bunch of scribbles." So then I'll follow that up. Uh, so what's it like then working with Steven Spielberg? Is he? He seems like. Uh, I mean. This is probably just a fanboy me, but when I watch him, I'm like, oh, he's like my uncle when he tells me about how they made movies and stuff. Is Does he direct the same way, or is he a really uh, hardcore director and has shots planned out really well? Oh, the, the planning um, for both is just, I mean, it goes back to like Hitchcock kind of stuff. It's mm-hmm. like everything is planned, because everything has to get budgeted. So, you know, everything is, is totally, totally worked out. But, you know, things come up, you know, like on the set, you know, where it's like, Oh hey wow the lawyer in the script and the storyboard he just gets railroaded by the tyrannosaurus. What if we tilted the camera up and you got to see the tyrannosaurus eat the guy? And Steve will go like, "Yeah, let's shoot that." And Kathy will go like, "We're not budgeting for that." And it's like, "Well, we can shoot it." <laughs> and then it ends up in the movie. So. Oh man, oh, that's fun. So uh, so what's it like working with George Lucas? <laughs> Uh, it was great working with George. I mean, all of those guys were, you know, the, kind of my directorial ideals. I mean, they were, they were the ones I didn't know anything about working in movies, and and so they were kind of chronologically the first people that I met that were, you know, very astute, uh, you know, well-studied filmmakers, and you know, uh, a, a lot of it when things work, you you do have this kind of you know telepathy. And there, there's a surprisingly little amount of actual discussion about how deep things are. It's, it's like you kind of—it's like working in an ensemble. You know, you just you're playing off of other people, and you know, know where they're, you know, how far away you are from them, or how close you can get. And so they—they they were all, you know, uh, very good memories. Very cool. And you also directed a few films. Did you take... Is it easy to go from visual effects to directing? Because directing, obviously, is such a visual medium as well and a profession. Or did you have to rethink how you did things as well? You know, I, I didn't... I 
I, I never really imagined myself as a director. I, I had this other fantasy of being a filmmaker that wasn't necessarily a director. Um, but I, I, you know, I tried to get a bunch of things going, and I think John made me direct something because I think he was tired of listening to me bellyache about <laughs> directors. And it was, it was a really great experience. I, I, had, I had a lot of fun doing it, and nothing ever really came of it. But it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a really tough, tough racket to be in. And I have a, there's a, up at my local market, there was a kid that was going to film school. And he asked me what he thought he should major in. And I'm like, you don't know? I mean, what? you should know that, the answer to that question. <laughs> I can't tell you. And he said, well, I, I was interested, I was thinking maybe about directing. Can you give me advice about directing? And I'm like, hell yeah, I can give you advice about directing. It's like, here's what you do. You stay working in this store for another three or four years. You buy yourself three really nice suits and you move to either Sacramento or Washington, D.C., you get your job as like, um, what do they call them, an intern or a Monica Lewinsky type of a thing, yeah. and, and you work in that milieu for three years. During that three years, you can only eat cat food. <laughs> That's all you can eat is cat food. But if you make it to the end of that first three-year period, you have to start lacing into the cat food human feces <laughs> until the, at the end of that third year period you, if, if you're able to eat an entire human turd then you could be a director <laughs> in Hollywood and I tell that to all my director friends they go fucking hey Bubba <laughs> <laughs> I don't know would you disagree <laughs> Uh, for those of you listening at home, producer John Davis just walked into our set, and I'm trying not to freak out right now. <laughs> I'm staying focused. Focused. <sighs> so, yeah. Mad God Part 2 is being funded on Kickstarter, correct? It will be. I haven't started one yet. And did you have a timetable for that, or is it just whenever you get around to it? No, I'm, I'm hoping to have that done by the end of next year, and then, then Chapter 3 by the end of the following year. And is uh, maybe sooner. Is uh, how long is it before Mad God Part One is completely finished? Uh, November, December. November, December. And is there a place we're going to be able to watch it around that time, or how are we going to? It'll be in a bunch of film festivals and um, a bunch of people that partic- participated in the Kickstarter get get Blu-rays of it. And then uh, I'm looking at um, talking to different people about theatrical distribution and things like that. How many parts do you think it's going to be? I have no idea. Okay. That's what I expected. <laughs> Very cool. Well, what I'm kind of thinking of at the moment is I've got these three chapters that, that are, are pretty intact, but in some ways, like, the way I'm thinking about it is a little bit like, I don't know what I'm talking about because I've never played video games, but the structure is such that I've got places where I can go into the, the existing narrative like with a wedge and like open it up and and the thing will still play so it, it it'll come down to when things start looking crappy and I run out, out of ideas and then I'll stop I when uh, the, you had a little teaser for what's happening next and the monster where you're showing the behind the scenes of it how long did it take to build that monster uh, it took a long time because <laughs> I you know like most things I well, yeah, that is a little bit interesting because it was like um, 
how do you make a monster? Hmm. You know, and you look at a lot of the stuff that's out there right now of people that, that design monsters, and it's it's pretty much kind of sort of the same thing. But, you know, what what is evocatively a, a, you know, a, a horror that comes from your unconscious? And so I tried a whole bunch of things, you know, and a bunch of things didn't work. And I just kept building it and tearing it down and building it and tearing it down, used a bunch of conventional materials and didn't like how it worked and ended up just stumbling across I think what I ended up using is mostly uh, insulation foam for like doors and houses I just eventually stumbled on the right material until things started looking right I, I couldn't do that <laughs> <laughs> how many wires were on that monster I can't I, I, it was mind blowing when I, I was watching I never counted you, you know again I don't think you know it's mm -hmm. just a matter of getting stuff together and I you know this look like it'll work this could work and you you build it up and you get stuff put together and take it down and put it back together and just go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth until like at a certain point you go like I'm done and how many frames does it take for like the movements for that monster too because it was coming like right at the assassin and he was moving too I, I, I guess you just told me you don't count but like it's just well uh, it, a complicated shot like that there were like five guys that were working on it. Wow. So there was Chuck Duke was animating the foreground guy, Tom Gibbons, and, uh, who's a Chuck and Tom are really great stop motion animators that go back a long time. Then then we have like a, a kid that that was uh, one of the guys was teaching that was going to a local college did some other stuff and there was another guy in the back. So huh. and that has to be super complicated too because. The character in the front has to move at the same time as the one in the back, correct? Or it doesn't match up. Is that a challenging thing to do when you're filming and when you go back and look at it, you realize you missed something? No, because you stay stay in touch. I mean, again, it's, it's, like, it's like doing a dance in like super slow time. Uh, and so you've kind of worked out what you're, what you're going to do in terms of the choreography. And then, as you come, you know, closer and closer and closer together to the contact, you're you're in a lot more contact with each other. You know, like in ten frames, I'm going to be here. You know, twelve frames here, and so you can help anticipate. That's so cool. Mm -hmm. Well, Mr. Tippett, thank you for stopping by and talking to us, and thank you for showing Mad God. Yeah, that's awesome. really awesome. Cool. I'm so excited yeah. to see more of it. And so, make sure you check out Kickstarter so you can chip in on chapter two is there a place we can go online right now and check out your other work uh just tip studio website yeah. cool jupit studio website cool thank no. you so much okay yeah. taking time we really thank appreciate you. it my pleasure thank you ted of tell you right horror show the sheridan opera house for letting us set up in their wonderful place until next year bye Visit our website, realnerdspodcast.com. You can tweet us at real underscore nerds. You can email us even, realnerds at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook. Hey, stream us on Stitcher. You want to call us? 720-6nerds5. And download us on iTunes. Just search Real Nerds. Thank you, Joe Kempter, for the wonderful voiceover. And also, Spark Mandrill, for the wonderful late-night jazz-smooth sounds of movies. You can find them on SoundCloud. This has been a Nebulous Visions production.